His goodness is running after us. Oh, man, nothing better. And uh, that's why this is my favorite time of the week, to be with those who we get. His goodness is running after us. Those of you online, good to be with uh, you all uh, this morning as well. His goodness, oh, man. This is the essence of the Christian faith. His goodness is running after us. Now, I'm going to ask you again to be praying. You know, we're still searching for a uh, pastor of adult ministries, and that process is going on, and and we are making progress. But uh, please be continuing to pray for uh, that person that God has uh, determined already. We haven't exactly figured it out yet, but we're convinced God knows, and he has a plan, and and we're looking forward uh, to that happening. Now, 25 years ago, uh, my in-laws took their kids and spouses and families, that was their four kids, to a dude ranch. And we rode horses for a week. But one of the coolest things I was looking forward to was white water rafting one afternoon. So this is 25 years ago. So my oldest daughter was about 13 and then about nine. And my son was, I think, seven at the time. And it hadn't occurred to me that there might be a little anxiety and worry until we're sitting there and they're giving you the instructions and telling you how to wear the life vest. And then they suggest, and if you fall out, here's what you do. Now, I had actually considered, I thought it was going to be a smoother little raft. But when it really got my attention and they said, and if one of your kids falls out, don't go in after them. And I'm thinking, okay, so this is going to be a little more exciting than I thought it was going to be. So we get in this big old raft, and I still remember there's a big old rope around the the outside, and it's a huge old raft, and I'm in there with my wife, who is, I love the woman, but not the most adventuresome, if I may may think. So I got three kids and my wife, and we're in this raft. And a lot of it is smooth, right? You could have had a four-course meal, and it wouldn't have been disturbed in in that rafting. And then you got the stuff that was a little more exciting, and then you got to about three or four rapids. Got my attention. Now, I understand some of you uh, love this stuff. And I think if I'd have been there without my wife and kids, it would have been more pleasurable and more enjoyable for me. But I don't ever remember a time in my life where I'm holding more tightly to this raft and to at least two of my kids and close enough to the third one if I thought they went over that, that they could go after. Because it caused me some anxiety. And I'll tell you, when we were in those rapids, I think primarily, though I'm a coward too, primarily in the concern for my kids and my wife, it wasn't actually that fun. And I don't ever remember a time in my life where I've clung to something for safety, for my good and for theirs, like that. Now, we're in a text today, and I think life can be like this ride, There's smooth stuff, then there's exciting stuff, and sometimes there are circumstances that quite frankly rock our world and cause us to get discouraged, cause us to get concerned, cause us to get worried. 
But Paul's going to make unmistakably clear here as we begin chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. There's nothing more important in life, nothing, than holding tightly to Jesus, than clinging to him and embracing him in all the circumstances of life, picking up at the first verse. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, not just in this letter, but I think primarily in his time with them and in another letter, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. Heavenly Father, as we look at these words, here's my prayer for my life and for everyone here. I pray that we would leave here today because we've been inspired by your spirit. We've understood and taken to heart those words of Paul that he inspired. But I pray we leave here today happily and joyfully clinging to you more tightly than when we arrived. My prayer is that you will stretch our faith, whatever's going on in each of our lives, my prayer is that you will strengthen our faith and you will empower and motivate us to embrace your son even more fully for the rest of our lives. That's my prayer, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this text, I think essentially Paul's answering four questions and we'll work our way through this. The first one is that why is it essential that we know we're holding fast to Jesus? And the big answer is because it's how we're saved. It's how we're redeemed. It's how we're in relationship with him. Now, would I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus I preached to you, and I think he's going way back before this letter, which you received. Now, I want you to know how positive here Paul starts this. This is, this is important. You received it. He's preaching to folks, but he has concern. But he states it so positively. You received this in the past, in which you now, having received it in the past, you stand. This is a good thing to stand. Isn't this positive? Isn't this encouraging? Isn't this great? In which you now stand and by which you are being saved. Now, what Paul has in mind here is really the full spectrum of what salvation is. As evangelicals, I think sometimes we tend to emphasize one component of salvation, and we like to put saved in the past tense. And certainly there's a dimension to salvation that if we're treasuring Christ today, 
is in the past tense. But there's a present element and there's a future element. The rest of, verse, of chapter 15 is about the future element. As he writes this, he's setting us up for that. So the theological terms that we use, and we're talking about being saved, uh, uh, the first one is justified. And this gets most of the airtime in evangelicalism. Justified is about when we come to faith in Christ and we treasure him and our legal standing with him is changed forever. And when we come to faith in Christ, it is changed forever. Now, I hear some people say we're declared not guilty. Absolutely, but it's more than that. We're declared actually holy. You've heard me say numerous times, I don't beat myself up even when I sin and mess myself up. This is why when God looks at me because I treasure Christ, he sees the holiness of Christ. Why in the world would I beat myself up? Well, I apologize. I ask forgiveness and I feel badly, but I'm not beating myself up. I am justified. And this within evangelicalism tends to get most of the airtime and I'm afraid all of the airtime. Now, Paul's including this dimension when he says you are being saved, but you saw the present tense there. What he's really, I think, wanting to make sure we're understanding is sanctification. And this is that process when we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. We are justified for all eternity. But the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, and he continues to transform us into the image of Christ. Now, I'll tell you, this relationship between justification and sanctification, this is one of the significant places that we differ with Roman Catholicism and their formal view. And the scriptures are full of trying to unpack this. And what does this look like? That we've been justified, and yet we are being sanctified, made more and more like Christ. Around here, we call sanctification OST, ongoing spiritual transformation. The unmistakable teaching in all of scriptures that when we come to faith in Christ, we are justified, but the Holy Spirit enters our life and we continue to grow. We're made more and more like Christ. We love him more and more. There's more grace in our life, more love, and we have a greater passion for helping others see the grace of Christ. Now, why this is so important, Paul and Corinthians isn't frustrated with their knowledge of the basic facts of Jesus. We got 14 chapters where Paul's trying to say, I'm not seeing the ongoing spiritual transformation in your life like I should. I'm not seeing the sanctific sanctification going on. This sanctifying process that ought to be evident in your life. They got the facts of Jesus right. But the culture's impacting them. And he's not seeing this passion for Jesus and this love for one another like it should be seen in those who genuinely embrace Christ. The third piece, which is what the whole, we're going to spend three weeks on the rest of Corinthians 15. It's the only, what I'm going to call, major theological issue in the whole book. For 14 chapters, Paul is saying, you guys aren't living ongoing spiritual transformation very well. But we're going to end this by he's going to make some clarifying comments about what it's like when we're glorified. Next three weeks. That's when Jesus returns. I will be 183 pounds. You've heard me say we're going to talk about this more. I'm going to have long flowing hair. I will be able to dunk a basketball with almost no effort. And I will spend eternity like that. 
That's what we're talking about for the next three weeks. That's the hope. And Paul's going Paul's to go there and in, in, in a real sense, he's setting us up for it. So when Paul writes, you are being saved, what he's talking about here is justification, sanctification, and glorification. How many of you guys have been glorified? Glorification's in the future. <laughs> I've met people who act like they think they've been glorified, but no, 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 no. Um, none of us have been glorified. We're in the process. If we treasure Christ, we've been justified. We're in the process of being sanctified and we will be glorified. But that's why Paul goes here to the present tense. Now, why is it so important that we know we're holding fast to Jesus? Because it's how we're saved. And I hope you read it there and you probably feel me setting up for it. Here's Paul's concern. Talking to a crowd, bunch of people out there. People all over the spiritual landscape. But his concerns from what he knows is going on in the congregation, there are some that maybe mistakenly assume they're holding fast to Christ when they're not. Now, let me say again, it's not because they have wrong theology. Everybody heard me? If you got wrong theology, you're in big trouble. But that's not the issue here. The issue is he's not seeing this ongoing spiritual transformation in their life that ought to be there. Back to the text. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, <laughs> all positive, and by which you are being saved. You see that next word with two letters that I put in red? Now, this has been Paul's concern all the way through the letter. He's alluded to it a number of places. Go back to the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, where he calls them human, fleshly. That's what the whole letter's been about. He spent 14 chapters pointing out where they're not expressing the ongoing spiritual transformation that they should be if they got this most fully. So you stand and you're good. If you're actually holding fast. If you're actually clinging to Jesus. If you hold fast to the word, to the truth I preach to you. And unless you believed in vain. Now, vain there is an interesting word. It means disingenuous. It means not real. I don't think he means that they're pretending unless you really didn't quite get what it means to treasure Christ. Unless you really don't understand how wholeheartedly this embrace was intended to be. And his conclusion is, he's looking at their lives. And he sees how they're living. And it's causing him concern. Now, the unhealthy expressions, I'm going to go through these fast. Maybe relevant for us today. Big idea was the culture was impacting them more than it should. Disunity. 
They're trying to raise up folks and the celebrity and the status. They're arrogant. They just want they what they want. There's sexual immorality going on in lots of directions. They're not resolving conflict with one another. They're selfish. They're lousy views on marriage and singleness. They're not living by God's relational design. They are self-focused. Are you seeing a pattern here? This is adnitudinal. We got 14 chapters. Has he really corrected what we would call any major theological doctrines? Let me assure you, if that were the problem in this church, it's where Paul would have started. It's not the problem. Problem is, generally speaking, they're just not loving each other like they're supposed to. Just got their way. They can articulate the basic tenets of the gospel. They can articulate those. They can defend those. They just not are expressing it all that well. So what does it mean to hold fast to Jesus? We got to hold fast because it's how we're saved. And we want to make sure we know we're holding fast because some may mistakenly. But what does it mean to hold fast to Jesus? We unreservedly embrace the essential truth. Intellectually, and I'm adding this word emotionally. Part of what I've grown up with and in evangelicalism, it feels like to me we've encouraged people to embrace this stuff intellectually, but we've diminished the emotional part. This is about head and heart being united and going, Jesus is the answer. Now, I want you to notice here, Paul goes back to some pretty basic truths, pretty foundational elements. It's not because he thinks they have it wrong. It's because of this. I got 14 chapters of you guys not living there. Let's go back to the truth. Because if you get the truth of these doctrines, I wouldn't have to write these first 14 chapters. If you are actually embracing what I'm going to tell you here, those first 14 chapters would have been unnecessary. So they don't have it wrong. He's just concerned that they're not expressing in their lives as fully as they ought to what this looks like when you get this truth. Jesus died for us. Anybody surprised? Here's where he goes. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, you really didn't get it. For I delivered to you of first importance. Here's the stuff. This is the hill we'll die on. I've mentioned a couple times as we've dealt with a couple issues through 14, we're going to live by this stuff, but we ain't dying on this hill. We will die on this hill. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now he's summarizing here and he's paraphrasing. He has the truth of who Jesus is. Almighty God came to earth, became a human being, but he went to the cross. Quite frankly, folks, again, don't ever miss it because every one of us messed up. Now here's one of the challenges, particularly for those of us that grew up in the church. We don't feel as bad as some of those that lived outside the church because in our mind we didn't live as badly as they did. We got to quit comparing ourselves with other folks and compare ourselves with the holy God. Let me assure you, when we compare ourselves with the holy God, it's a big stinking mess that everyone has. Every one of us. And there ain't much difference between us. I'm going to suggest anybody who's lived in the world, because now we go back through history and maybe even some contemporary folks that are really not very nice, and we go, well, at least I'm not them. We compare ourselves with them and then against God, 
We look a lot more like them than we do God. He died for us. His death was God's eternal plan. This wasn't happenstance. This wasn't an accident. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Back to Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy about the Messiah. This is God's plan. This isn't an accident. Jesus really died. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried. They put him in a tomb. Since Jesus' resurrection, there have been people that have doubted and it's still out there fairly popular. He just appeared to have died. Paul's trying to make clear. He died. He was dead. And his resurrection, as we go to the rest of the chapters, can have huge implications for us. Extraordinary positive implications for us. But he was dead. And then he rose from the dead that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. He conquered death. What he did upon the cross and dying for our sins, taking our junk on himself, our sin, our shame, everything went on him. It actually was accomplished. And he triumphed over death so that we will triumph over death. And this too, again, Paul wants to make clear, is God's eternal plan. There's nothing here that happened by accident or happenstance. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This was all foretold. This was all a plan. Now, why does Paul emphasize this? Part of the reason is he was an Old Testament expert. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. But he misinterpreted it. Why we emphasize appropriate hermeneutics, interpretation around here. We can hold stuff, but if we're not reading it accurately, we're still messed up. Paul was an expert in the Old Testament, and he missed the big idea until he saw a bright light and heard that voice. You remember the voice? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he goes back and he starts reading the Old Testament, and there had to be thousands of, oops, 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 I missed it. But after he met Jesus, he looked back and he looks at the Old Testament and he says, this was God's eternal plan. This is it, this thing of beauty. Those are the central truths of the gospel. There's lots of theological issues we'll talk about, lots that'll be relevant. But folks, for us at RCC, he died for us. It was God's plan, and he rose from the dead for us, and this is God's plan, and it was his plan from the beginning. Now, why should we believe this? And if you're here today, and you're trying to consider Jesus, we're thrilled you're here, and we're hoping you will still consider. The short answer Paul's going to say is here. Is it true? I had a friend years ago that went to a church. He'd actually been in leadership in his church, and uh, we had these discussions. Man, I was in seminary. And he said, it really didn't matter if these events really happened. Not according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if you'll stay with us. 
Some of you know he's going to go on. If Jesus didn't really die for, die for us, we're actually to be pitied. Think about what we're doing here. You give money to this place. And for the record, thank you so much for your investment in RCC. But I'm going to tell you, if Jesus didn't really die from the dead, you're sitting here listening to me is stupid. And Paul says if it didn't actually happen, we are to be more pitied than anybody else in the world. Wasting our time, our energy, and our resources. But it actually happened. And there are witnesses. He's going to give a list of us. Cephas, which is the Aramaic for Peter. The 12 here. And 12. Some of you know, well, minus Judas and then adding Matthias. But the 12 is just a general reference to the, some of you. Some, I know you mathematicians and engineers are going, well, maybe there wasn't really 12 at the crucifixion. There were only 11. Because Judas was out. And they, I got it. The 12 was just a general reference. 500 others. James, uh, Jesus' brother, all the apostles talking about here in this context, other general believers, and then finally Paul. Here's what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Here's what Paul's saying. You want to go check out whether this really happened, go talk to these people. These are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Don't be frustrated. Go talk to these people. Most of them are alive. Now, some of them have died, and they're in the immediate presence of God. And he's going to talk about the eternal state, the rest of chapter 15. But their spirits went to be in the immediate presence of God, those who have fallen asleep. You all understand that's a euphemism there? Are you okay with that? They're not actually asleep. They died physically, but they're alive spiritually, and we'll talk about that. Well, probably not. We're just going to go on. If you have a question, talk to somebody else. <laughs> then he appeared to James and then to all the possibles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Here's his point. Here's the, here's the truth of the scriptures. This is the essence of it, and it actually happened. This is true, true stuff. So we hold tightly because this is the truth of what God actually accomplished in real life. And then to the last question, what is holding fast did Jesus bring? And Paul's going to use himself here as an illustration. He's going to use his, his own experience. And folks... My prayer is that we all ought to feel like Paul. Because where he starts is, I think, the primary motivation for our holding tightly to Jesus. Where he starts this, as he describes this process of coming to faith. A realization of the depth of our need. You guys have heard me allude to it, those of you who've been around here for a while and a long, long time. I didn't really come and treasure Christ till I figured out in seminary the depth of my need. I was one of those guys that really wasn't that bad, relatively speaking, compared to some of you I look out here and know some of your lives. <laughs> wasn't until I actually meditated and thought about it. Many of you know this is my great concern, particularly with our kids and with our children. We don't want to solve the problem before they realize the depth and the magnitude of the problem. We want to expose them to Jesus, but let's let them wrestle with. I look back and people solved for me a problem I didn't know I had. I ended up not solving it until I was in seminary. And my life changed once I got an accurate picture of the depth of my need. But there was a lot of thinking about it. And I could have quoted all the Bible verses. 
I could have given you all the theology. There's just one problem. I had never really felt my need. That's why I clung really loosely to Jesus. We get the magnitude of our need. Holy, and I was going to have a word in there that was going to use for emphasis, but again, this is presence of the Holy Spirit and ongoing transformation in my life. Man alive. Notice where Paul starts, because I believe it's actually true. Last of all is to one untimely born. And this is an awkward translation. Awkward. Now, it's tough to understand what he means, but I'm going to tell you what I'm fairly confident he means here. Only place this word is used in Scripture. Everywhere else in, in literature of the day where it's used, it's used of a stillbirth or of a miscarriage. Here's what Paul gets. He was dead. He comes alive spiritually, but he started dead. Now, when we arrive in this world, and I tell you, it's exciting when we have babies born. <laughs> They are physically alive, and they're in the womb, and they're physically alive. Now, I still go, how do you breathe in water, and then all of a sudden you're breathing air? I'm just going to tell you, we are, how's that happen? It's like you're a fish for nine months, and then all of a sudden, how does this work? But we arrive in this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. Paul got it. And he's talking about himself. But the truth is for all of us. He appeared also to me. And I believe he means this. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. I've had hundreds, if not thousands, of conversations with people over my 35 years in this gig. I'm not God. I don't ever want to be God. But I am. All of us are in the business of trying to appraise where people are. Anecdotally, I will tell you with great confidence, my experience has been those who cling most tightly to Jesus have the clearest experience and expression of the depth of their sin. My experience, talking with folks, those who get it, cling tightly. And an understanding that our faith is a consequence of God's grace. We start with the magnitude of our sin, and then we go here. The reason we believe is not just because Jesus died for us, but that unmerited favor even extends to our coming to faith. God's done a work in our life. Our faith is but a response to his grace. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's out there persecuting the church and there's a bright light and a voice from heaven. Now, he figured it out and I'm pretty sure when there's a voice from heaven, you're not going, I wonder who that is. But his life was transformed. He became spiritually alive and got called to be this apostle and he understood where the credit for all of this, where it resided. Not in himself. In God. And I believe it leads to a gracious expression. When we experience God's grace, it leads us to express that grace to others. Now, I read a book years ago, and I'll recommend it still. Uh, uh, oh, professor at USC, I'm getting old. Pardon me? Dallas Willard, thank you. Renovation of the heart. And in that book, he uses two terms to describe what was going on and what's gone on in the church, and he's in the immediate presence of Jesus now. But I love the book because he used this term, treasure and vessel. And he suggested in the church in America, one of the challenges, we confuse the treasure and the vessel. The treasure is Jesus. The vessel, that's all the stuff we do to point to Jesus. I'll never forget, because I had seen that in my early life. It had been part of my experience. But vessel things become more important than they should. Now, we got to have vessel stuff. We're going to have Bible studies. We're going to have church services. We're going to have tents. We're going to have a building. We're going to have all this stuff. we got to have it to focus on Jesus. The vessel is a key part. But the problem is, Vessel things start to take preeminence over the treasure. One of, that's eh, probably my greatest frustration in the last 23 months. I have spent more time thinking and talking about vessel issues than I believe in the prior 33 years of this job. Inside, outside. Brian Betts and I had the most conversations, the whole staff, but we're going to have outside, insides, where we're going to have masking, but not everybody wants to wear a mask. Where should we put the mask section inside the congregation where we're not? Ah! <laughs> I can't tell you how many conversations. People getting excited about vessel things. Masks, no masks. We're going to deal with the vessel. We got to have vessels to point to the treasure. But here's my deep conviction again. Those who most fully experience their need and are most fully experiencing God's grace, they don't confuse the vessel with the treasure. And there's a grace that comes out of them in every conversation. We want to talk about the vessel. We want to have the best vessel we can in every context. But the treasure, you guys remember what Paul just said was most important? Jesus died for us according to the scriptures. He rose from the dead for us according to the scriptures. This is the treasure. Everything else is less important. We're going to talk about it. 
We like to hear people's preferences. Those who experience their sin and experience God's grace, there's a grace, even when they disagree with folks, that flows from them. That feels like, to me, the heart of Paul's concern as he writes to these Corinthians. That's not what he's seeing. And a passion to share this good news with others. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I think he's just saying this. Though it was God who brought me to this place and gave me, I don't sit on my rear end and do nothing. Don't misinterpret this experience of God's grace and this view, strong view of his sovereignty as though we don't do squat. No, it's because of that that I am now motivated and I'm working harder. I don't think he's, yeah, he's just trying to illustrate he's passionate as he compares himself with these other, other apostles. Didn't really feel to be deserved, but don't mistake this. I'm not taking a secondary place because Paul's saying God put me in this position. Though it was not I, it's God through him, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or the other apostles, so we preach and you believed, and I don't care who it was. I lived that the gospel go forward. I lived that people would see the love of Jesus in every interaction, in every context. I'm always making assessments of how am I interacting with these people and how will that impact how they see Jesus? Other believers, unbelievers, everybody. Paul's been trying to say that. Because there's nothing more important than Jesus in holding tight. So, takeaways. I'm going to ask you to spend some time this week pondering your own birth. I'm presuming most of you don't remember it. But just pondering, you were born physically alive. Praise God. You were breathing water and then you start. Doc, are they, technically they're not breathing water, are they? They're just living in it. Okay, thank you. They're not actually like a fish, to go back to that earlier. And this is where my wife always warns me, don't say things that you haven't planned. That was not one that was planned, and I'm sitting here going, huh, they probably don't breathe water like fish. They don't. Anyway, remember we were born physically alive, but we were spiritually dead. And God, God alone made each of us alive. I didn't see a bright light. I didn't hear a voice. But I have no doubts it was God that brought me to faith. For all of us, we live because of him. And we exist as a congregation to help one another hold tightly to Jesus. We talked last week. It's the purpose of the church to find joy, to find hope, to find love. We're here to help one another hold more tightly to Jesus because we're in a world and a life where it's not always easy to do so. So if you're, one, you're here this morning and you're investigating Jesus, we're thrilled to have you here. Keep doing it. And if you're wondering whether or not you want to cling to Jesus, you're still trying to figure that out, my strong encouragement is keep thinking about it and come talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Don't jump into this without processing it. Take your time. Think about it. Investigate if you need to whether or not this thing is true. But I'd love to have conversations with lots of other folks. If you're struggling to hold tightly right now, Talk to somebody. I don't know if you've noticed, but life has been challenging in many ways for lots of people. And, and if you'll trust me on this, it was before COVID. <laughs> now we just got all this other stuff on top of it. If you're there struggling, please come talk to somebody. 
We got a bunch of folks here that would love to help any of us here hold more tightly to Jesus. This is, this is what it's about. Now, if you know someone right now, part of our church family, outside of our church family, but somebody that loves Christ who's struggling to hold tightly. I think sometimes we sit there passively and go, oh, I'll pray for them, but I wonder what I can do. Just come alongside and befriend them. Do not preach at them. Come alongside. Love them. Talk with them. Show them what it's like to be held up. Develop a relationship where you might have an opportunity to talk about the times where you had trouble holding tightly to Jesus. There's actually a correlation between that and difficult circumstances. I don't know if you've noticed. But it is good. We live with the most hope, confidence, and this is where he's going to go, and we'll deal with it in the next three weeks. Enjoy today because of what we experience at Jesus' return. That's what the next three weeks are about. There's a day coming when we're not going to have to wrestle with any of the stuff that right now we wrestle with. But our conviction is even in our wrestling with it, God is using us to encourage others and to display to others in our wrestling with the difficulty in his life how great Jesus is. You know why we cling to Jesus? I don't know if you figured it out. Because we're in a world of hurt if we don't. Not just when he returns, but today. Life is hard. Ah, but he wants to be with us in all of it. And that's where we're doing it together as a church family to encourage one another. Thanks, Father, for your love. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for Paul and his wisdom that he got all of it from you. You are gracious and you are good and you are glorious. And your goodness, oh, Father, it is so true. But sometimes it's hard to believe that. It's hard to trust that your goodness is running after us. So encourage us. Help us to help one another. Ah, know that your love is indeed running after us. That's our prayer, Father.